Hello and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko and here with me today is Adina Mignona. Adina is many things. An engineer with an educational background in physics, astronomy, and computer science. An author, a collector of hobbies, and a mother and wife, among other things. She's made a career in the aerospace industry, specifically the space side of that industry, but not exclusively as she took a break to venture into the world of entrepreneurship and retail and write science fiction. She'll talk to anyone about science, technology, and science fiction at any time with the purpose of spreading the joy and excitement of it. Please help me welcome Adina to the podcast. Hello, Adina. Hi. Hello. Thank you. We spoke briefly before the podcast, and I admit, I admit it to you that I'm going to geek out on this episode. Awesome. I am a, <laughs> a nerd at heart, and this is the first time we're discussing science topics. And even though it's the Life Teacher podcast, I'm still we're still going to learn a few things, and we're going to teach you not just about life, but how life started. How could have life started, right? So, really, really happy to have you on. Let's start first with who is Adina? That might be the hardest question to answer <laughs> out of all the questions you're going to ask me, because I think of myself as many things, uh, but I guess I'll start a little bit at the beginning. I'm from New York, although I wasn't born there, but I, I consider myself from New York because that's where my memories are. But I've spent my entire adult life in Maryland. I came here to go to college and I stayed. I went to the University of Maryland to study physics and astronomy with the hope of having a career in, in the aerospace industry. And I've been pretty successful at that. I'm pretty happy with that. And Maryland just became my home. And now at 47, I'm a mother with two kids. I'm a wife. I'm all these things that you just mentioned a, a minute ago. I'm a writer. I do all sorts of things. And I'm a lover of life and enjoying the ride. <laughs> Thank you, Adina. And tell us about your attitude of science as you were growing up as a kid. So I'm a child of the 80s. So to put it in context of, of what things were like back then, which means my access to information was limited, especially when I try to look at my own children and compare, you know, where was I or how was I doing or interacting with the world and interacting with science when I was their age. And science was something that I enjoyed, but didn't know that that's what I was doing at the time. It was, there were projects at school. They were things I did with my dad and it was just things I did. Looking back, I'm like, I can clearly see how I had a, a proclivity towards the interest in science. And whenever we had a project at school that was science related, I lit up and I, I enjoyed it. We had a, a project once where there were several chemicals and I use the term chemical in quotes because one was salt, one was sugar, one was baking soda. And we had to do experiments to try to figure out what they were. And we had to try to compare them and see how they reacted in different ways. And, and I love that. In fact, I think that was a, a competitive project where there, it was a little bit of a race to see who could figure it out first. And I think I won. <laughs> so science was always something that 
that was there that I didn't, and I just enjoyed, but access to information was limited. It was limited to what my dad knew. It was limited to what my teachers knew. It was limited to what my local library had. And that was it. And so I kind of wish I was a a child today with access to what everyone has today, because it's, it's almost limitless, but yeah, I enjoyed everything about it. And when did you know that science was going to be the career path for you? I'm pretty sure I always knew that some aspect of science engineering was going to be it. From a very young age, I, when I was maybe six or seven, I thought I was going to own my own company someday and we were going to build robots and we were going to be located on the moon. So in in some way or fashion, I always had some dream that involved space and science and technology. It evolved over the years, especially when I got a little older and learned that uh, we hadn't been in the moon in my lifetime. So it was a little disappointing and and the likelihood that we were going to get there, you know, as the years went on, uh, you know, got less and less. So I had to modify that vision (laughs) to fit the times. And I think it was when I was in early high school that really started to gel with, you know, the realism of what the world was really doing and what I could really do. But then I decided to major in physics. Uh, Most people in my position would have majored in something like aerospace engineering, but I decided to major in physics because even then I could see that majoring in something like physics would give me more options later. And I was very nervous about doing something that would narrow my focus too much, especially the year that I was going to college was 1992 and challenger, the challenger accident happened in 1986. So that's six years apart. And in that time, the industry had recovered because for, for a couple of years after challenger, there were, there were, I think it was almost three years before there was a normal rocket launch again. So by 1992, The industry had somewhat recovered, but I still was nervous that something could happen again and set it back. And if I majored in aerospace, then I I felt that I might then have to go work on the aero side of aerospace. And while that's cool stuff, it's really not what I wanted to do. So majoring in physics gave me more options. And so that's where it started to gel is, is in high school and then through late high school. And you did... I think I caught Mm -hmm. this from what you said. You grew up thinking, I want to be an astronaut, right? Yes and no. When I was very young, I thought, again, I would go to the moon, not in the way that, not in the way that astronauts live on the space station today. I I thought people just went to the moon. This is when I was really, really, really young. (laughs) And then when I learned that, you know, we hadn't even been to the moon in my lifetime, that was a, a little disappointing. So I didn't really have aspirations to be an astronaut the way that we have astronauts today or the way we've had them during the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. With the exception of there, there was a short period of time late in college, I, I sort of did, but it was kind of half aspirational because one, I never would have met the physical qualifications. I, I've never been athletic <laughs> uh, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I kind of wanted to, it would have been cool 
but you know, the real, and I did even submit an application to become an astronaut. And I think it was like 1998 or 1999. I barely met the requirements. And so I, I got the, you know, the application returned to me saying, no, you don't, you, you're, you don't have the right stuff. <laughs> but you did apply. I did. That's amazing. Congratulations <laughs> on just applying to be an astronaut. That it's is paperwork. remarkable. <laughs> It's just huh? paperwork. It really was just paperwork gathered just paperwork. a bunch of paperwork. <laughs> it, it's not just paperwork, Adina. You took a step that maybe a lot of people would not have even dared mm. to, to even try. Yeah. So hats off to you for even you. applying for that kind of work and position. Adina, can you tell us what is the nature of science? How does science work? So science is at the same time, both reliable and subject to change. And, and I think a lot of people struggle with that because I think a lot of people look for the reliability for the absolutes. And so when change does happen, it freaks them out. Like, wait a second, this thing that I believed, now you're telling me it's not true, what's going on here? And that's something that, that people have to understand that science is constantly evolving, constantly learning. And the whole idea is to do it as objective as possible. You know, and I say as possible because we're human, we're, we're not perfectly objective in any situation at any time. And the other thing about science is that we try to follow a systematic methodology. And I think different cultures and over the years, that methodology might be a little bit different. Like what we do here or what's normal here in the United States might be slightly different in another country, but generally it's a systematic method that people understand as they go into and try to try to figure stuff out. So science is about trying to figure out and come up with laws and theories that hold true as much as possible until we learn more. And you know, a really good example of that is gravity. You know, for a long time, we didn't know anything. Then Newton comes along and we have the laws of gravitation, which are basically true in our daily lives. We can, I can drop a ball and I can measure it and it will be true here. It'll be true on the other side of the planet. It'll be true everywhere. Of course, there, there's a little bit of differences, but, but you know, where I am on the planet, but from day to day, it's going to be true. But then comes along Einstein and we get you know, special relativity, general relativity, and a big part of general relativity is the fact that on a large, you know, galactic, you know, these big scales, gravity is a little bit different. Gravity can bend light. And that's not something that we deal with every day, but the whole point is, is it extends the theory, it extends our knowledge about gravity to begin with. So, yep, it's reliable, but it's extensible. And I think that is the nature of science and trying to, to match up those two concepts. Uh, it, it hurts a lot of people's heads. <laughs> and there's something else called scientific consensus yes. where you have a number of, I don't know if that's an arbitrary number or right, where you have a certain percentage of scientists in the world that mm -hmm. all agree on anything and everything that has to do with the natural world, like gravity, mm -hmm. like evolution, like play tectonics, mm -hmm. there is scientific consensus. Yes. And the, the idea is if I do an experiment 
I publish what I did. I tell people how I did it. I tell people about my results. And then another scientist can look at what I did and they can attempt to repeat it. And they should be able to repeat and get the same results. And for a lot of the scientists, especially the scientists that I'm interested in, you know, so I study physics, I study astronomy. Uh, these are very, I don't want to say easy. Easy is not the right word, but it's, it's very achievable. And I think one of the struggles people have too, is then when you go down to some of the other sciences like biology, which is not my area of expertise, I, I am interested in biology. I, you know, study it, especially medicine, because I, I care about, you know, my life, my health, my children's health, all that. But those are some more, way more difficult sciences because the repeatability aspect is much harder because, you know, if you test me as an individual, and then you test another individual, even if they're similar to me, they might be the same gender, the same age, they might've even grown up in the same location, they might eat the same thing every day, but their body is different. So the results can be different. And so there, there's a big difference between that kind of repeatability in a science that, again, the repeatability is more achievable in some sciences and others. And I think that's another struggle people have when they think about science. Well, definitely. You have, yeah. I always read articles that say the risk factors for blank and blank is or mm -hmm. are blank and blank and blank. It's because we know that even if you are, let's say, obese, even if you are eating junk food, it mm -hmm. does not mean that you're going to go into cardiac arrest when you're right. 45 years old. Right. It just doesn't. So I, th I think that definitely when people, when artists, sorry, I think that when people read articles like that, that say the word risk factors, know that it doesn't mean if you do this, this will happen mm -hmm. to you. Yes. Yes. Now, let's go into one of the topics that has lived rent free in my head <laughs> for a very, very long time. And that is the birth of our universe. The Big yes. Bang Theory. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure you know it well. Yeah, well, pretty well. Uh, I studied, so this is part of the subset of astronomy that is is mostly cosmology. And I did study some of that when I was in school. And it, it is an interest because it is a, a very fascinating part of our universe. Uh, it is interesting to note that it's probably not named well. That's another interesting thing about science is how different things get their names and what that name does to how we think about it. Um, because it was probably neither big nor a bang, <laughs> but it was the start of, of our universe. Yes. As far as we can tell by our observations, our, our long range observations. According to physicists or astrophysicists, the idea is, is that every single atom, every single piece of rock, every single piece of matter, every single star, which I say sun, by the way, because a lot of people confuse the two when, when they're essentially the same thing. If I say star, you have to think of sun. It's just mm -hmm. a huge ball of fire. And the only reason why you can see them far away is because they're emanating that much light out into the universe. That's why you can see them, but you mm -hmm. cannot think of them as white dots in the sky. 
they're balls of fire, just like our sun. Mm-hmm. I did the math or I Googled it. I didn't do the math. I Googled it. One sextillion suns in our universe. All of that came from a singularity point that is smaller than an atom. The implication is, is that every single matter, every single sun, every single planet, all was condensed into a point that is the size of the smallest part of an atom. So the Big Bang Theory, and again, this is this is not my super, super, you know, area of expertise. There are people who, who get their whole PhDs in this one little area and spend their whole careers on this. I am definitely more of an enthusiastic amateur when it comes to that. But I, I understand the how it's really hard to wrap anyone's brain around the concept that all matter in the universe originated in a singularity. And, and that's the, the key word there is it's not a single point, it's a singularity. And the problem with a singularity is that's actually where what we know about physics breaks down. We don't know what's happening inside that singularity or what that really is. So that's why I think it really is hard for anyone to conceive of it. But from the evidence of looking backwards in time, which is what we do when we look out to the edge of the universe, um, this is what's led us to this current theory. And again, it's terribly named. It's kind of a fun name and it gave us a fun TV show too, (laughs) but it was not big and it wasn't a bang. It was an expansion. Can you go a little bit into dark matter and dark energy and where is science right now on Mm -hmm. these two? Not, I wouldn't even say concepts. They have been detected right? As far as I know. Well, this is actually another, is a good segue because talk about badly named things. Uh, Dark matter is neither dark nor matter. We don't know what it is. And yeah, what happens is people, physicists, they're at a conference or they're quoted in a newspaper and these terms that sound really good, it sounds like it's something you can wrap your brain around, get quoted. And that's how these things get named. But Dark matter is a term for something that we just we just don't know. So we were talking about gravity a few minutes ago and how we believe we understand gravity pretty well because here on planet Earth, I can drop a ball or roll it down the hill and I can predict how it's going to behave. And I can do that really well. We've been doing that for a long time. We know we understand gravity pretty well because we can send satellites up into space. We can send satellites and, and probes to other planets. So at some level, we can claim, yep, we, we do understand gravity. But now when we go and we look at some galaxies far, far away, <laughs> when we look at these galaxies and we see how they're rotating, they're not following the rules, not the rules that we understand it, not the rules that are helping us send probes to Mars. And one way to explain that was, okay, well, if there's more matter than we can see, Okay, that's what would explain it. And that's why people said dark matter, because we can't see it. Okay, it's dark. And it's something because we associate something matter with gravity. 
that's where the term came about. And ever since people have been looking for dark matter and they haven't been finding it. So I think that the current thinking is it is possible that maybe our understanding of gravity might not be complete. You know, we, we understand it in a way that works for us on a day-to-day basis that works for us in the solar system, but there might be additional understanding. And this is one of the most fascinating things about science and, and ties back into that whole reliable, but subject to change as we learn more. And it also means there's a lot of opportunity for people who are interested in these different fields to, to study and to, to try to figure out these problems. And the same thing is true, I think, with dark energy, although I know a little less about that because it's, it's newer, but I think it's, it's the same concept as we understand things. But now when we, we look around, we're like, well, wait a second, things are not behaving by all the rules. So what's going on? And dark matter, uh, dark energy was a term, you know, to mimic dark matter, but yeah. (laughs) So Adina, a few Mm -hmm. more astronomy concepts, and then we'll move on. Sure. You saw the movie Passengers with Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. The idea behind the film is actually very interesting. The idea that humans can actually travel to another galaxy. Now, we know, based on science, that it is X number of light years away, stating that if you were to go on a spaceship and travel to another galaxy, you'll never get there. It would take you hundreds and hundreds of years to get to the next galaxy. And, and plus, on top of that, you have to find a habitable, habitable planet to get there. But then the film takes on this new quote unquote technology in which these humans are set up in a pod that suspends the human body to a point where it's not even aging and Mm -hmm. that there's this spaceship that is on autopilot and controlled by a computer and every single human, including the captain, is in these pods. Do you think that's possible thousands and thousands of years from now that people can actually do this and go to another place? I mean, are we even, is that even possible? Sure, sure. It's, it's technology. And I do believe that if we can imagine it, we can possibly do it someday. Not in my lifetime. You know, that kind of technology is not happening in my lifetime. I'm pretty confident in that. But the fact that we can imagine it, I think it's doable and Certainly, I think we can say with certainty, even technologies that were never imagined, we do today. Imagine talking to someone, you know, four or 500 years ago and telling them that we were going to communicate like this, how we're communicating now. You would have been like burned at the stake for being a witch and and being completely crazy. We, We had no idea. People had no idea. And yet people then started to play with something called electricity and magnetism that they didn't understand, had no idea how it was going to be used. Uh, And probably a lot of people were like, why are you playing with that? There's no application for that. That's just stupid. Go, you know, plow a field, (laughs) make some food, do something useful with your life. Well, and, and here we are, we can have instantaneous conversations with people on the other side of the planet because of that. And that was something that was not imagined a few hundred years ago, or if it was imagined, it was 
crazy. So by that analogy, I think if we can picture it, if we have a desire to start looking into that, I think it's, there's definitely possibilities. It might not take the form that we think it will take. You know, we, a lot of science fiction goes into using faster than light drives to get places. And well, maybe it's not faster than light, but maybe it is a wormhole or something, or, you know, I think the result is we'll be able to get to places in a reasonable time or do something technology that extends our life in a, in a reasonable time. But like I said, it might not take the form that we, we initially envision it, but yes, we will eventually be out there in, in the universe. Well, we, everybody knows that earth has a time limit and mm -hmm in order for the human species to outlive the planet, what we are envisioning or what the, what the people, what the director envisioned is what's probably the only hope that we have, right? We cannot have generations of people on spaceships living a hundred years on a spaceship, mm -hmm. right? We, it has to be something of that nature in which we say bye to earth, thank it for every, the life that it's given us. But at one point, the sun's going to become too hot and it's going to be unlivable. And mm -hmm. if the human species were to survive, we have, they would have to leave. And we're talking mm -hmm. millions and millions of years down the line. I still think about this, but the fact that you're saying, of course, look at 500 years ago. Now you have to imagine 500 years forward. Mm -hmm. How is that going to look? All right. Enough of this crazy science talk. <laughs> Let's move on and let's go a little bit more personal. Adina, you worked in the space industry mm -hmm. and then your words, you kind of burned out. Can you yep. talk to us a little bit about that experience? Oh, sure. Well, it's kind of funny because I remember telling my dad that I wanted to, you know, not just quit my job, but quit the industry at the time. And this is, you know, I just got done explaining to you how I grew up believing that all I wanted to do was, was do space stuff and technology stuff. And then all of a sudden I'm telling my, my dad that not only do I want to, you know, quit the company I was working for, but I want to leave the industry. I want to go open a retail store. <laughs> I wanted to open a, a paint your own pottery store. And, and that is just a, a sign of the, the, the real world and how, you know, I did work for this company. Well, I at that point, that was the third post-college job I had, and I got burned out. It was very intense. I was working all the time. I was responding to what I thought was just, uh, I don't want to say ri ridiculous requests, but it was it was too much. And it was it was all the time. There was no end in, in sight. And so I needed a break. And so I, I took it. And at the time when I did, I thought I thought I was done. If you'd asked me at the time, I, I thought I was completely done. I was going to have this completely new path. But after a year or two is when I, the, the reality of who I am came back and I needed to come back into the industry, um, not being around the technology, not doing space stuff. Um, I, I needed to come back. <laughs> Can you go a little bit more into <laughs> what? was stressing you out. You said that you were asked to do something that you didn't want to do or you well, thought it's not, it was not that. Yeah. It's more, 
so we had, there is a couple moments that I can point to where I'm like, yep, I I have to get out of this and do something different or work for myself or or something like that. There was the, the company I worked for at the time was very small and we had one main customer and they were a Malaysian company. So they were on the other side of the planet. And at one point uh, I was, so I was the, the, what we called the lead systems engineer. So it was almost like a a deputy program manager uh, role. So me and the program manager, we were asked by our company to go visit our customer out there and uh, basically convince them to not completely back out. Cause if they had backed out of the project, um, our company would have been in a lot of trouble because that was our, our main, our main thing. So my uh, program manager and I, we go, we travel. We are successful. We convince them to to stay in the project with us. So we come back, and the day that we, we get back, uh, and, and again, this was also like a a short planned trip, meaning like three days before we went, we were told we were going. So it wasn't a lot of time to prepare to go to the other side of the planet. <laughs> That's a big trip if you if you've never been there, or if you've never done that kind of travel before. And so the the day I get back and get into the office. Um, no one said, you know, thank you or good job or anything, which is, that's okay if that's all it was. But instead, uh, my, my manager, not, not my program manager I traveled with, but the vice president of engineering, who was kind of the person I really reported to, I, I got yelled at for all the work that didn't get done while I was gone, saving the program. And my program manager, so while he was away, he incurred a little bit of financial uh, expense due to health. He had to go to the doctor. And so he had like $60 worth of medical expenses on his expense report. And the uh, CFO um, very unkindly and in front of a lot of people yelled some inappropriate language to say, no bleeping way are we paying for this. Uh, we all knew the company was struggling and the CFO could have very easily asked and said, Hey, you know, we're struggling. Could you cover this? You know, it's a hardship for us, but instead it, it was the attitude and those, that incident, that set of incidences kind of epitomized what we were going through at the time. And I, I didn't appreciate it in, in the least. And it was, it was just too much. So that was probably the moment when I was like, yeah, I have to figure out a plan on how to get out <laughs> and do something else. That's very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And then you are taking a break. Mm-hmm. And so tell us a little bit about that. You became an author, correct? Yep. Well, that came later. Uh, okay. You know, well, yeah. So the, the timeline is, so we started the, started the retail store, did the paint your own pottery, which is a lot of fun, you know, cause I do have an artsy, you know, fartsy side to me. And I, I, I love that. And it was nice because we were around kids all the time. I, I worked, you know, did children's birthday parties, you know, there was some goodness to it. It was really nice. And it was actually very useful because when I decided to come back into the industry, I came with a whole different set of skills. You know, I, I brought with me time management skills, uh, the skills of of a different kind of leadership. Uh, when you're the boss, when it's your store, it's your business, you're the one who hires, fires, everything is on you. It gives you a different appreciation for when you go back to work for someone else, you have a different appreciation. And I definitely came back into the industry with a better mindset. And I did write a couple books about that experience, both when I 
open the store. And then when I closed the store, because I eventually did close it and, but then became a science fiction author years later, much more recently, which is what I've always wanted to do anyway, (laughs) all through this. And so now you're back in the space Mm -hmm. industry, correct? Yep. Yep. How was that coming back? Was it surreal or it just felt natural? A little of both. And that's because the company that I I came back into, I I knew them. They were my customer for one of the companies I'd worked for prior. So it was actually uh, a friend of mine who he lived around the corner from my store and brought his daughter in. And when he saw it was me, he's like, what are you doing here? You belong, you know, back in the industry with us. And at first I tell him, ah, you know, now get out of here. No, 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 no. But then months later, I was like, you know, I, I do need to come back. And so the company that I joined, I knew a lot of the people, I knew the products, I, I knew the space stuff they were doing. So there was some level of comfort. I wasn't going into somewhere where I hadn't been, you know, I, I knew these people. But on the other hand, in just two short years, a lot had changed and it, it felt like I had been gone longer. And, and the, the aspect of the space industry that I've, my career is mostly focused on has been software and two years is a long time to be away from that. And so at first I was very nervous that I was a little in over my head that I didn't know what I was going to do and I was never going to figure it out. But of course I did, you know, a, a lot of us have that feeling all the time. Uh, but we get through it and I got through it and I'm glad I did because to date the company that I went back to work for in the mission, it was called GOI one. And it was a remote sensing spacecraft, which means we take pictures of the earth. And I worked that mission from nearly, they hired me. It was nearly the beginning of the project. And I worked it through launch. I was the command and control segment lead, which really at the end of the day meant that I had a lot to do with how we sent commands to the vehicle and took pictures. And so when we were in that phase of launch and early orbit, I took pictures using that satellite of earth. So I took a picture of Stonehenge. I took a picture of the pyramids. Like that's not something that everyone gets to do. And it was just by virtue of my position and role in that project that I I got to to do that. And that was really cool. And let's talk a little bit about where the space industry is now. I mean, mm-hmm. people hear, you know, and when people hear it, they just take it at face value, right? Elon Musk mm-hmm. and Mars, they see these SpaceX launches going on at Cape Canaveral. Where is, and let's get let's get it straight from someone in the industry. Where mm-hmm. is the space industry now and where do you see it going in the next five to 10 years? It has been exploding and I think that's going to continue. In fact, you know, so when I had my burnout and left that company years ago, I wanted, I had always kind of wanted to work for myself. I think I had mentioned when I was six, I thought I was going to own my own company on the moon, but you know, 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, there wasn't a market for the kinds of stuff there is now. So right, right now it is incredible. Companies are everywhere. Everyone is getting involved in the space industry. I mean, Amazon is involved. Everyone is getting involved from you know the big companies to small companies to startups like SpaceX, which were funded 
you know, by the, you know, the billionaires, uh, they're funding their companies. So I, I think it's pretty amazing that there's all this interest and excitement. So I think there's a lot of opportunity and I think it's only going to continue to grow at this point. You know, we are, we are dependent upon a lot of stuff in space. You know, I don't know if people, how much people realize that how much GPS has become such an important part of our lives. You know, communication satellites are an important part of our lives and, and not just you know, using it like on our personal devices, but our economy needs all this technology now. You know, weather satellites, which have been around like our whole lives, I mean, we need it. We depend on all of this. So it's it's just only going to continue to to grow and, and get bigger. And something about the space industry, economic wise, has always baffled me. And hopefully you can answer this. A rocket launch mm-hmm. costs a lot of money. What is the ROI of a rocket launch? I mean, if you're spending, and let's just throw a ballpark figure, you can throw it back at me and say, no, it's probably this much. If if Elon Musk says, okay, let's launch this rocket into space and have it come back. And let's say that costs $50 million dollars. Is there an ROI on that? Where are you going to get back those $50 million from? Mm -hmm. So I might, I'm probably not the right person to do that, but there are tons of people uh, who who do think about that. And that's actually interesting because as you watch the whole industry effectively get disrupted by SpaceX and Elon Musk with their ability to, to launch cheaper than possibly anyone else. Although I I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. So nobody quote me exactly, but that is, that is what they've been able to do is really, really change things. Uh, And it's pretty amazing. So obviously, you know, different companies have had different success with this. Um, A lot of space funding comes from, you know, from the government. Uh, so for example, that satellite, I mentioned that I worked on GOI one, we were at the time partially funded by the government and partially it was private. And we were able to sell that data partially to the government and partially private, you know, so there is a, there is a mix. I think more and more, you know, private money is getting involved and more and more private investment is getting involved. And there are people who can really talk about that and know the value of that. Um, I'm here more because, you know, it's just cool space stuff. And I'm lucky that there are people (laughs) who are able to make the business case work. Um, and yeah, uh, but it's really interesting. I think you answered it. So, I mean, it's in its most simplistic explanation. Mm -hmm. I think you hit it. There's certain data points that Mm -hmm. the rocket ship collects on its launch collects in space. And then when it's brought back to Earth, it's all also collecting data. And so then Elon Musk and SpaceX are able to sell that data to either a private company or the government. Is, is that the ballpark? No. Well, so I, I'm sure that that is involved in what they do. But no, I think it is really more purely about, well, there is data collection and that data is valid. Is, useful in continuing to design and evolve the kinds of rockets they do. So, so SpaceX, one of their, their amazing things is the reuse that they're doing with their rockets, which is something that's a fairly, fairly new thing. And just 
you know, the reuse itself is, you know, valuable that you do not have to build and qualify another new piece. It, it, it is reusable. And, and they've been able to make the, like I said, they've been able to make the business case work. I, I don't know right, <laughs> exactly right. how, but it is working. Okay. Yep. All right. And what you're, what you said is absolutely correct. As someone who follows this, mm-hmm. it's pretty remarkable that you're able to launch and then, but that's not the big thing, right? We've, we've been to space. The remarkable thing is to bring that rocket and then to somehow do the math and have rockets go off on the inbound to the point where it fights the gravitational pull, having the rocket come down on a controlled landing without destroying that rocket on impact is absolutely remarkable. They're reusing that rocket. It's crazy to me. And yes. again, I, I will just air out my frustration. I just don't think that a, a private company will say, yeah, here's 20 million. I want to see that rocket go up into space. But of course, there is another economic side to it. Mm-hmm. And maybe a few Google searches will help us out. Well, remember what, you know, some of the, what SpaceX is doing is they are supplying the International Space Station. They are starting to launch satellites so that there, you know, there's, there's the rockets aren't just going up and coming down just because they are bringing stuff to space, right? <laughs> okay. That I didn't know either. Okay. Ah, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yes. you for that clarification. All right. Adina, talk to us about crazy, foolish robots. Yes, that's my book. That's my first science fiction novel that I've completed. And that is on Amazon. It's, it's out there. It came out a few months ago and it was many, many, many years in the making. It's the first of a series of four books that I've planned to, to work on in, in the series. And originally it wasn't going to be a series. Originally it was going to be one long book. And I decided um, from, from my own sanity, I needed to split it up and do it in, in chunks and release it in chunks like this. So, and it's meant to be humorous science fiction. Uh, it's the portions that are based on science are based on, on real-ish science but a lot of it is is very fictional, uh, but it's meant to be for for a good time and to have fun with it. Not not super serious, dark and disturbing, but you know, crazy foolish robots. There there are a lot of robots, and they're a little wacky. <laughs> All right, Adina. So as someone who followed their dreams into the space industry, burned out realize what their real true dreams are, which is to go back into that industry. What advice would you give to people who always say to themselves, I wish I can do blank, but blank. You can, you, you are only limited. If you tell yourself you're limited and and you're not, you can do, you know, these things aren't necessarily easy. You know, it doesn't mean it's easy to do. It wasn't easy for me to open a business. It wasn't easy for me to close that business. It wasn't easy to write a book. It wasn't easy to get my degrees in college. It wasn't easy to come to this career, but these are things I wanted and it was, it was worth it. So I was able to put in the effort. So if there's something you want to do, you need to put in some effort and it might be learning things that make you, that are difficult. It might mean talking to people that's difficult. Um, you know, there, there is a path forward. You're not stuck. 
Thank you, Adina. And thank you for coming on to my podcast. Thank you for the opportunity to geek out and show my nerdy side. I really appreciate it. I really get hyped up when I talk about science and, and topics in science that really interest me. And thank you for answering my questions. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me here. Adina, please tell the audience where they can find you and where they can find your book. Okay. My book, Crazy Foolish Robots, is on Amazon. It's available in paperback and Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. So Crazy Foolish Robots, search Amazon, you will find it. And where you can find me, the best place to start is on Twitter. My handle is my first name, A-D-E-E-N-A. And that just goes to show you how long I've been on Twitter. (laughs) But that's the best place. And you'll find my website and everything through there. And I, I love to answer questions on Twitter. Definitely give her a follow. Thank you again for coming onto my podcast. You're welcome. Thank you very much. The title of this podcast episode is Let's Talk Science with Adina Mignona. And that will do it for this episode of the Life Teacher Podcast. Until next time. Bye.